turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We are continuing our series on the Christian home. And I had originally intended four messages. We're now on our seventh. And we may go on even more because I found two more to preach. So we may just go on and continue to study this. We're in Matthew chapter 10. And as I continued to study this wonderful doctrine of the Christian home, it came to my attention that there is an area of life, especially regarding the family, about which we are commonly in danger. Let me ask you, have you ever known a man who wanted to do something good but he was pressured by his wife, so he did not do it. Have you ever known that? Have you ever known a man who wanted to do a good thing, but he was afraid that his children would be unhappy or might not talk to him or respect him, and so he did not do that good thing? We put a lot of pressure on each other in the family. And in Jane Austen's marvelous book, Sense and Sensibility, the very beginning of that book, a man's wife dies. I'm sorry, a a woman's husband dies. And the woman is left as a widow. Her brother was told, you've got to give a lot of the money to, the, to the, your sister to take care of her. And the brother's thinking about giving her a lot of money, but then he talks with his wife, and his wife says, oh, she doesn't need that. I mean, she can live on 2,000 rand a month. And so the husband is listening, and he eventually decides, oh, well, I think you're right. And he keeps all the money for himself and just gives her, well, 500 rand. And the, the, the widow and her two daughters struggle very badly because they have no finances now. That man was influenced to do a bad thing because of his family. I think that's very common. I think that we all love our home because home is, by definition, the place where you feel most comfortable. And so a man is tempted not to say anything to his wife that will break up his comfort. And women know that they have a kind of power. If they get angry, if they're not happy in the home, they can make the husband very unhappy. They know how to put thorns in his shoes. Of course, it goes both ways. Men know how to put problems in the lives of their wives. Children can do that to their parents. Grown-up parents who are 65 know how to do that to their 38-year-old children. And so, in a sense, there's this tension all the time where you're pulled by your father and your uncle 
and your children and your wife. And all the time you want to keep everyone happy. So, what do we do when Jesus Christ enters the heart of a man or woman? And when Jesus tells us, I want you to love your wife the same way that I love the church and gave myself for the church. What do you do as a wife when the Bible commands you to obey your husbands and to fear them and to call them Lord like Sarah did to Abraham? And not even to speak a word so that you can win your unconverted husbands by your godly humility. What do you do when you are commanded to love your children and to take care of them? But then, what do you do when those children or wives or husbands or parents pressure you to do something against the Bible? History is full of examples of men who lived in broken homes. When I say broken here, I mean homes that were divided with some being converted and some not converted. Even the Apostle Paul, we believe from history, probably had a wife. We think that, although we don't know for sure, because it appears that the Apostle Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. And typically, according to Jewish tradition, if you were a member of that council, you would have had a wife. Paul would have been 30 years old. Why wouldn't he have had a wife? Christian love in a Christian family always does what is best for the family, even if they don't see it as best. And that brings us to the outline for tonight. Here it is. Verses 32 to 33, you must confess. You must confess in front of your family members. In verses 34 to 36, you must adjust your expectations. And in verses 37 to 39, you must evaluate your love. So I want you to confess before your family members, adjust your expectations, and evaluate your love. Or I said I do, but what I mean is our Lord wants you to do that. And here's the thesis for the message tonight. Christ would have us love our families with a certain kind of love and no other kind of love. Brothers and sisters, that is the great pattern of maturity in the Christian life. It is giving the right kind of love to the right kind of object. You give soccer, soccer love. And don't give soccer religious love. You give shoes, clothing love. And you don't give shoes, family love. You give dogs, animal love. And not child love. You give your wife wifely love and not pet love. You give ice cream, food love, snack love, and not God love. And so tonight I would like us to study the scriptures so that we can give to our families family love and no other kind of love. There is a great danger of giving our families religious 
love. May God save us from it. Let's examine the passage. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Matthew 10, 32 says, Whoever therefore will confess me before men, I will confess him also before my Father which is in heaven. But whoever will deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father which is in heaven. There are two ways to confess Christ before men. The first is with your mouth. You must use Christian words before men. And your family is by definition the men that you are before more than any other men. If you have to confess Christ before men, who are you before more commonly than your wife or your children? You must confess Christ before your wife and your children. They must know what you believe. They must know that in your mind you have given full consent to Jesus being 100% God and 100% man. They must know that you love him more than you love your own life or your own wife. They must know from your words that Christ is my King and my God. He's my Savior and Redeemer. He is my future hope. They must know from your words that you love the Bible and you don't contradict the Bible. They must know from your words that the Bible is the final authority for everything you say. Do your family members know this? Do your family members know that if I get in a discussion with her, I already know her answer is going to come from the Bible? I'm not asking if your family members agree. Your family members, you can't control them being converted. I'm not telling you if your family members disagree with you, you're wrong. I'm telling you, if your family members don't even know that the Bible is your final authority and you don't move not even a millimeter from the scripture, you haven't confessed Christ publicly. If your family would have a doubt, that is, if they would doubt, hey, I'm not sure if the gun was put to my husband's head, if he would choose Christ and death or life and denying Christ. If your family's not sure, if I asked your family the question, let's say your husband went into a private room and there was 50 million rand and there was Christ and Jesus said, now's your choice, you have five seconds, take all the money or me, but you can never undo your choice. Five. Four, three, two, one. What would your husband have taken? If there's even a laughter or doubt in your wife's mind about which you would take, you haven't confessed him publicly before your family. They ought to know immediately, oh, this isn't the thing. And if a wife laughs about that, if she's asked, and I have asked wives this question and husbands, and if they laugh about it, that tells me, ha, 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 
I'm in an awkward position because I know what my spouse would take. And if I really say they take the money, then th- that, that's the kind of thing you laugh about. No one laughs at it and say, oh, it'd be Christ. No one laughs at that. You must confess Christ with your mouth. And secondly, you must confess Christ with your life. There is sometimes a dichotomy. Dichotomy means a division between two things. There is sometimes a dichotomy between words and actions. And so the taxi has an elam on the back of it. Mintiro yabalabula, yabulabula. Works, talk. Can I say mabasa akataura? Anutaura. Verka prat. Your, your, your words talk and your life talks, but your life talks more than your words talk. There really isn't a dichotomy in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, Jesus says, you will be justified or condemned by your words. In James chapter 2, he says, you will be justified or condemned by your works. Really, both of them are absolutely vital because as Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. What it simply means is, if you add up all the words of a man's life, you'll see what he's really like. There's no man who can consistently talk like a hypocrite. He might come to church on Sunday morning for an hour and pretend to say amen, hallelujah, and go home and be bad. But that's just it. When he goes home, the, the evil words will come out. And if you could somehow record all of his words, you'd find 10% or 5% that were hypocritical. But the majority of his words would match his life. Men are not the kind of creature that can consistently, at all times and all places, have their words be spiritual while their hearts and their actions are always wicked. Men can sometimes speak good words while their hearts are wicked, but they can't consistently talk in a righteous way and also live in a wicked way. No, there's going to be a meeting of those two roads. Your words and your life will match, which is why Jesus says you're going to be justified or condemned based on your words. Because sooner or later, the words in the life line up. To confess Christ before men means to have your words and your actions before your family as a public testimony to Jesus Christ. So do you restrain your religion in front of your family? Do you restrain your religion because you're afraid your husband will say, oh, you're just trying to pretend like you're spiritual? Is it wakola? In song, wakola, you're making yourself holier than us. You're trying to pretend like you're some super Christian. And so because you're ashamed by that, You don't do the things that you should do as a Christian. Do you follow your family in habits or activities that they would prefer, even though you're offending your own conscience? Do you watch that movie with your husband or with your children? Or children, do you watch that with your parents, even while your conscience is cut? Well, you know, I I don't feel right about this, but... If I say anything, they'll laugh. They'll say, ah, look at him. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, where were you yesterday? We saw what you were doing yesterday. Do you live in a sinful way, offending your conscience because you don't want to stand up to your family? We must confess the truth of Christianity before our family members. 
That means family worship. Do we lead our families in family worship? Wives, if you would say, I want to lead my family in family worship, but my husband, he, he's not on board. Have you tried to do it by yourself with the children? Husbands, you say, I want to do it, but my wife won't listen. Okay, do you try to do it with your children? Are you trying? And if they won't do it, do you say, well, I'll do with me and my own by myself. I'm going to lead you to Christ with whoever will follow me. Point number one, we must confess the truth of Christianity. That's verses 32 and 33, and you see the word confess there. But look in verses 34 to 36, where we have to adjust our expectations. Look at the first words of verse 34. Do you see where I get the idea of adjusting your expectations? Where did I get those, that idea from? Tell me, what words in verse 34 get me the idea of adjust your expectations? Don't think. Don't think that this. You're all thinking something. That is, you all expected something. Now stop it. Stop expecting that. What did they expect about Jesus in verse 34? Do not think that I came to send peace on earth. Adjust your expectations about my purpose. You thought that the reason I was coming was to bring peace on the earth. Because you saw in Isaiah 9 verse 6, he is the prince of peace. But you see, I came, Jesus is saying, to give long-term eternal peace. I came to be the prince of eternal peace, not the prince of a superficial temporary peace. Adjust your expectations. Let's discuss this for a moment. If our expectations are inaccurate, our lives will soon follow. When we expect our wives to do something for us and they don't do that thing, even if they do three other good things, if we had expected this good thing, let's say we had expected them to have fish and rice ready with the cold drink. And they didn't have fish and rice, but instead they did this big cleaning job that we had really wanted them to do for about a year. And they did that, and they also did these other things. They paid the bills and such and such and got the kids ready, but dinner with the fish and rice, it wasn't there. Like you had thought was going to be ready. How easy is it to be tempted by Satan to overlook the four hours she took cleaning that thing just for you and the other things with the kids and the washing of the car and the this and this. She did all those things because she says, I love my husband. And then you come and see and say, where's the fish? Why? why? So I guess, I guess now that I'm tired, I'm just going to go out and get the fish. Oh, it's no big deal. No, no, I'm not bothered. I'll just go over here to fish and chips myself. Our expectations commonly control what we do in our lives. They cause us to ignore all the grace that we've been given and focus on the things that didn't go the way we wanted to. So what should we expect? Look at verse 34. In verse 34, it says we should expect that Jesus will divide the family. He comes with a sword. Look at verse 35. I am come to set a man against his father, 
and the daughter against her mother. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Notice that every one of these examples are a younger against an elder. Christ comes on earth and you can expect you're going to have problems with elders. Problems with superiors. Problems with those who have given their lives to their useless traditions received from their forefathers. Jesus is going to cut those off. The majority of people who are converted are younger. You can expect to have problems with your elders. You can expect that. Jesus says it up front. Christ did not come as a nice man. A man who never crosses someone else's will. That's really what we think of with the word nice. What does it mean to be nice in English? A nice man is someone who never crosses someone else's will. But that means he could be a very wicked man and a very weak man. When someone is doing something terribly wrong, when the children are doing the wrong thing at home, the the husband is so weak, he will not confront. And so the, the children say, oh yeah, he's nice. Others say he's nice because he never crosses us when we do what's wrong. Jesus did not come to be nice. He came to be holy. Notice that truth divides men and women. Truth cuts us apart. Verse 36, a man's enemies will be those of what? That word household means the people living in the building with him. And from the Bible, it would be his wife and his children. In some unusual circumstances, it might be the uncle or the mother-in-law. But in general, the nuclear family that we discussed in our last message or two messages ago is the husband, the wife, and their children. Not counting the mother-in-law, the father-in-law, the uncle-in-law, the cousin-in-law, the, the great-grand-step-uncles and babies. and It's father, mother, and their children. And Jesus says up front, expect your enemies <clears throat> to be as near as your house. But let me give one word of caution here. Some people are pugnacious. Pugnacious means you're ready to fight. All the time. Perhaps you think that is the way Americans are. I hope it's not true. I don't want to be that way because blessed are the gentle. But some people are quick to get angry and quick to take a fight. Some people take a fight quickly because they want to feel like they're clever. See, I saw this thing and I'm standing on this thing and I'm not going to change from it. When in reality, they're taking something that's too rand... And they have such bad judgment, they saw the two on the coin, and they thought there was about eight zeros after it. That's two million. I'm not going to bend. I have principles. She's going to come back, and she's going to say she's sorry, because I'm not going to bend. I know what's right. No, you don't. You saw two rand, and you thought it was two million. The scripture warns us about this in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1 verse 4 says, watch out for people who bring small issues and make them big. That's chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 7, he does the same thing. Watch out for it. There's these guys, they bring in these Jewish fables, these old wives' stories, and they get this little point, and they say, this is the way it is. And they fight over this little, little point, thinking themselves, see how clever I am? 
I saw this thing and no one else saw it. Yeah, no one saw it because it's smaller than a speck of dust. You've got really great eyes. You're staying down here and you miss the whole world. It's warned again in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're in the same books now. This is the third time in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, we're warned for the third time. Watch out for those people. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, 4, it's false teachers and false Christians. They love finding very small things and blowing them out of proportion. And in 1 Timothy 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul warns Timothy, Oh, Timothy, Guard the trust that was given to you and watch out for foolish divisions and questions about false knowledge. So here's someone who comes in and says, oh, I really know. And they stand firmly on some little minor thing. Oh, I'm ready to fight. Ford is better than Toyota. What are you fighting about? Who cares? Oh man, I'll tell you the truth. The roads in Pretoria, they are better than the roads in Durban. That's just the way it is. What are you fighting about? Now, the illustrations I'm giving, okay, we can laugh about those. But haven't you met people who take very small things and blow them up? Let's be honest. Aren't you some of those people? We all do that from time to time. And we need to baptize our logic with the Bible until we can put a two rand in a two rand slot and a 200 rand in a 200 rand slot. Which is one of the reasons in our hymn book why we read every Sunday morning a creed. We always want to put our eyes back on the 200 rand and try to get away from the two rand. But we're just wired. We're going to find a two rand and say, man, I'm a man of principle. I'm going to fight over that. And we're all laughing at you. Because you're fighting over two rand. Fight over the two hundreds, not the twos. But there are truths that we must divide over. There are wise distinctions in the Bible that we must not give on. And that's our Lord's point here. We should expect that we will sometimes be called on to differ from our elders. We will be called on to differ from our extended family, verse 35. We will be called on to differ from those in our own house. Let me ask, brothers and sisters, are you willing to disagree with the people in your own house if they do not follow the Bible? Are you willing to disagree with those who are closest to you? They are going to make your life uncomfortable. Swords are not comfortable things. They're going to divide the family. It's never comfortable to be cut. The sword is going to cut. Are you prepared? Are you willing to follow the Lord Jesus even if it feels like cutting? Third point is in verse 37. Evaluate your love. Look at verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 38 he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That means if you, don't, if you love yourself more. So in verse 37, we have father or mother. In verse 37, we have son or daughter. In verse 38, you have your own self. So here's the three categories. Do you love your parents more than God? More than Christ? Do you love your children more than Christ? Do you love yourself more than Christ? 
How can we evaluate this? Some people love their parents more than Christ. Let me give you some examples. When you will spend money foolishly at a funeral, you are loving your parents more than Christ. Or your uncles, or the elders, or the traditions, or even people who've passed on before you. When you allow alcohol at your parties because your elders prefer it, you are loving your parents more than Christ. When you allow your in-laws to live with you, when that brings tension between you and your wife, you are loving your parents more than Christ. When you spread your money to the extended family so that your children do not have good books, a Christian education, their own Bibles, you may be loving your family more than Christ. You need to help people, help them. But charity begins at home. 1 Timothy 5, 8. If a man does not provide for his wife and his children, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And when it comes to taking care of your children, they need to all have their own Bibles at the very least. As Christians, that's the very least. In fact, you should be planning a library for them so that when they leave the house, they leave with at least 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 of the best godly books. If we aren't even giving those things to our children, but then we give money to others, well, you know, my, my brother's cousin's son, he's really got school fees at Vitz, and he's always been nice when he comes to visit us. Hey, help him if you can. After your kids have their own Bibles, after your kids have been taken care of, after, you know, my kids are, are being raised up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Some people love their children more than Christ. When you purchase foolish entertainment for your children without considering their spiritual health, you are loving your children more than Christ. That means Wi-Fi. That means smartphones and data plans. When you buy those things for the kids without considering what's going to happen to them spiritually, you're loving your children more than you love Christ. And it's a temporary love. When you do not come to church because your children do not like a true church, you are loving your children more than Christ. When you do not bring your children to church because they make such a hassle about it, you are loving your children more than Christ. When fear of losing your children keeps you from disciplining them, you are loving your children more than you love Christ. And when I say each time you're loving your children or you're loving your parents, what I mean is you're giving them that 30-minute love, but the real eternal love, you're actually pulling back and depriving them of that eternal, serious, long-lasting love. So now let me close with four examples of biblically limited love. And they're all very good. The first and last are the best. In John Bunyan's immortal book, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes the story from prison. And what happens in that story? A man has a burden on his back. He wants to get the burden off and it's crushing him. He talks to his wife and his wife says, oh, don't worry about it. He says, I have to worry about it. And then he's given a book that says, run, run from the wrath that is coming. He tells his wife about the book and she laughs. He tells his four sons about the book and they laugh at him. 
And day after day it goes on. He tries to talk to them. In fact, John Bunyan says, the wife thinks he is crazy. They begin to talk. The wife and the boys begin to talk and say, well, we got to do something to fix your father. Hey, he does, he's not thinking clearly. We're thinking clearly, but he's confused. We've got to find a way to fix him. And so finally, in John Bunyan's amazing writing, at the very beginning of the book, after begging his family to come, he sets his eyes on the path and runs, though it is very difficult with the burden on his back. And when his wife sees him, she shouts after him and says, Stop! Stop! What are you doing? And John Bunyan writes, does anyone know this line? He puts his fingers in his ears and does not look back, but shouts out, life, life, eternal life, as he runs to the path. And some of you are in that situation. You have family members and you've talked to them and talked to them and talked to them. And they won't listen. You need to put your fingers in your ears and run. And throughout that book, John Bunyan has pilgrims say repeatedly through the book, the only thing I want is that my wife and kids would come. Once he's asked when he becomes a member of a church, the people who are giving the membership interview to him say, Why are you coming alone? Don't you have a wife and children? He says, yes, I do. And the membership people say, well, then why didn't you bring them? And he begins to cry and says, I tried, but they wouldn't come. She says, it's virtue who's asking Pilgrim this. Why did you come at all? And he said, I decided that if they wouldn't come, I would. Throughout the book, he's saying, oh, my wife. And at the very end, before he dies, he gets one prayer request. And his prayer request is this. Please send someone to invite my wife. And you know what happens? After he dies, she gets the invitation. And after he's dead, she says, what did I do? And she leads the four boys to Jesus. And the whole way along, she says, why didn't I follow him? Why didn't I follow him? And some of you are in that situation. That's example number one. Let me give you an example from real life. We read this last week in the book group. In Fox's Book of Martyrs in 304 AD, Timothy and Mara were married for three weeks. They were serving a church in Mauritania, that's in northwest Africa. These were African Christians. Timothy and Mara were married for three weeks when the governor came and heard that Timothy was in charge of the copied manuscripts of the Bible. In those days, you can't buy a Bible. You don't give away leather Bibles. You write on the leather and you have to copy it by hand and not many people know how to write and read. Timothy knew. He writes and reads and copies and preserves all those manuscripts. The governor comes and says, give me the manuscripts. Timothy says, I would sooner give you my children 
then give you those manuscripts. The governor says, then I'm going to use a red hot piece of metal to burn out your eyes so you'll never see it. But it says the governor was amazed with his patience as his eyes were burnt out of his head. And so he hung up Timothy by his feet and tied a weight to his neck to slowly stretch him out and kill him. In this state, they brought his new wife, three weeks married. How would you feel? Three weeks married, they bring his new wife in and she urges him, oh, for my sake, recant. I'm such a young girl. If they kill you, what will I do? I'll be a widow for 50 years. Oh, Timothy, just say you don't believe in Jesus. They took the binding, the gag out of his mouth and Timothy greatly blamed his wife's mistaken love and declared he was ready to die for his faith. Seeing that, Mara, his wife, resolved to imitate his courage. And Timothy and Mara were crucified near each other. That is the right kind of family love. Mara had the wrong love. Oh, give up, give up. I love you so much. I can't see you tortured. Timothy, they take the gag out. He's hanging upside down. I'd rather die. And you should have never have told me that. Oh, you're right. And she joins him. Is there not a man here that would love to have a wife like that? Is there not a wife here who'd love to have a man who could lead like that? Next example. I gave this last Tuesday in the theology class. But it is so good it needs to be given again. John Pascal in the 1600s in Italy was a believer. He was betrothed to a young beautiful girl named Camilla Garina, he told her she, he was going to become a pastor in the mountains of northern Italy by the border with France. And she said, oh no, then I will never see you again. And that is true. They did never see each other again. Here's the picture. Pascal and his fiance separated and he went to preach. The Catholic Church interrupted him while he was preaching Put him in prison for eight months. While he was in prison, his brother comes and begs him to give in. This is what his brother writes. Quote, my brother, if you are a Christian. I'm sorry. This is Jean Pascal's answer to his brother. His brother came and said, oh, give up. No, no, give up. You're so clever. You're so young. You've got your whole life in front of you. Just tell them you don't believe in in these things and they'll let you go. And you can really believe it in your heart. And he answers his brother this way. My brother, if you are a Christian, why do you distress yourself over me? Do you know that a leaf cannot fall to the ground without the will of God? Comfort yourself in Christ Jesus. The present troubles are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come. His brother answers him, I will give you half of my fortune if only you will recant and save your own life. His brother replied, that is Pascal, the one who was going to die. Oh, my brother, the danger in which your soul is in gives me more distress than all that I suffer. He writes to his wife, his fiancée, just before he was killed. He hasn't seen her for eight months and he's about to die. Quote, my state is this. I feel my joy increase every day. 
As I approach nearer the hour in which I shall be offered a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ, my faithful Savior. Yea, so inexpressible is my joy that I seem to be free already from captivity, and I am prepared to die for Christ not only once but 10,000 times if it were possible. That is the rightly ordered love. He loved that girl dearly, but he loved his Savior so much more. Let me close with this final example from today, from the 21st century. Nabil Qureshi was a Pakistani-American. His father and mother were born in Pakistan. They moved from Pakistan in the 1900s and moved to America where very soon the Qureshis became American citizens. The Qureshis were Muslims, devout Muslims, but they loved America. So much so that Mr. Qureshi began working for the United States military. He served there all his life. He was a dedicated American citizen, a good man, a good citizen, and a devoted Muslim. His first son was Nabil, and he was unusually gifted. At five years old, Nabil's mother taught him to read the Quran in Arabic, even though they were Pakistani, which means they speak Urdu. They don't speak Arabic. They only learned Arabic because they were Muslims. The mother teaches the five-year-old boy how to read Arabic. The five-year-old boy begins reading and even memorizing surahs from the Quran. That's chapters of the Quran. The five-year-old boy became a model in the mosque. He writes, By age five, I had read the entire Quran in Arabic and had already memorized many chapters. From that time on, my life as a Muslim was used as a model for all the children in the local Islamic communities. He goes on to explain how much of the Quran he memorized, how he was there at all of the prayer times, how all of the parents would say, You need to be like Nabil. I loved Islam with all my heart. The reason for this was not only that Islam was the religion of my parents, though this was surely a factor. Many years later, when he grew up, he went to college. He met a Christian, and he saw the Christian reading his Bible. He was so shocked, he said, we Muslims always say you Christians never read your Bibles. And he said, the true Christians do. They began talking over the next three years. And in 2005, around May, Nabil Qureshi, at some 22 years old, became a Christian. He was in medical school, preparing to be a doctor. And he had to go back now and tell his parents. This is what he writes. After my family learned of my conversion, they have not been the same. My mother has tears in her eyes whenever I see her, a quiver in her voice whenever I talk to her, and despair on her face, even in sleep, when I see her. Never have I met a mother more devoted to her children than my mother. And how did I repay her? In her mind, decades of emotional and physical investment ended up with her son, Choosing views that are completely opposite to everything she stands for. My father, a loving, gentle, big-hearted man, 
With every ounce of emotional strength expected from a 24-year-old, 24-year veteran of the U.S. military, broke down for the first time that I had ever seen him cry. To be the cause of the only tears I ever saw fall from my father's eyes is not easy to live with. I respected him more than any man I'd ever met. To hear him, the man who stood the tallest in my life from the day I was born, my pattern of strength, my father, to hear him say that because of me he felt his backbone has been ripped out, feels like patricide that is killing your parents. Nabil goes on to write, but I still chose to be a Christian. He was a Christian for 12 years before he died in 2017 at 34 years old from cancer. And up to the end, he said, my father is a good man. My mother is a good woman. But we have forever been cut apart. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture that puts too much love and attention on the family in the wrong way and not enough love and attention on the family in the right way. We follow our families into hell and even lead them into hell. But when we are needed to love our wives like Christ loves the church and to love and lead our children, we don't do it. May God save us from this. May we confess Christ before our children. May we expect May we adjust our expectations and expect that it's going to cut. It's going to cut. It's going to divide. It's going to hurt your life. It's coming. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 and 4. We were chosen for suffering. Expect it. And then finally, let's evaluate our lives to be like the lives of these four examples that I've read. Let's close in prayer.